Welcome to Thriving Perspectives, and thank you for taking a moment your day to join us, hear our stories, and discover new ways to embrace thriving. I am Terry Dubroy, founder and executive director of Thrive, Enabling Potential, and today we are joined by a remarkable guest, an exceptional educator, and my good friend Joe Bovet, to talk about his inspiring journey of pursuing a PhD while instructing at Nipissing University full-time. Joe has been an instructor with Nipissing University's Department of Biology and Chemistry since 2004. In 2012, he joined a pedagogically transformative community of practice called the Open Consortium of Undergraduate Biology Educators, or OCUBE. A recent collaboration with a member of OCUBE involving academic skills development in university courses, combined with Joe's passion to help students learn how to learn, inspired Joe to enroll in the PhD program with the Schulich School of Education at Nipissing University. As a student again, Joe has gained both a renewed sense of empathy for his students and has been reminded of the importance of maintaining a growth mindset. Welcome to Thriving Perspectives, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Joe, I marvel at your ability to successfully balance your roles as a popular university instructor and as a dedicated husband and a father of two girls, all while pursuing your doctoral studies, thus demonstrating to me and those who know you well an uncanny capacity to manage diverse responsibilities and commitments. I really think this suggests an awful lot about you, especially your adaptability and your strong time management skills, which are important components to your thriving mindset. We will unpack all of this over the course of the podcast, but let's begin with how we came to meet each other and foster a two decades old friendship. Sure. You know, I, I, if I can interject before we start unpacking, I must say that it, that was a lovely way to be described. But as I was reviewing our notes before the podcast, I must admit that I was in my office at work on a Sunday while doing so. <laughs> so what immediately came to mind was that, you know, it's, it's a daily challenge to try to find that balance. And, uh, I'm not always successful, but I try to balance things as much as I possibly can. So I appreciate you describing me that way, and perhaps I'll be able to share a few things that I try to do to be good at balancing, but, you know, it's always a challenge day to day. (laughs) You're right, and it's such an act that way to be able to make sure that we're being the the dad that we need to be and the husband that we need to be. Yeah. Actually, one quick anecdote that when thinking about balancing, you know, my new role as a student as well as an instructor, I, I was reminded of a chat I had with a very good friend of mine and mentor. Uh, his name is Tom Haffey, and he taught at the University of Western Ontario. And I remember when I first told him that I was going to be enrolling in the PhD program, and I was excited to do so. And as Tom always would, he paused for a while, and then he looked at me and he said, Joe, when you say yes to something like that, you say no to a lot of other things. Yeah. And that has really stayed with me. Yeah. Uh, and it it's resonates with me <laughs> almost daily yeah. because I think that's the challenge is trying to figure out what you can say yes to and what you must say no to and trying to navigate which are the things you should say no to because you can't say yes to everything. So, yeah, well said, well said. And I think that's, uh, for many people, it's a challenge and to find a way to be able to make that balance, but certainly some good words of wisdom there for sure. And no doubt since you began the PhD program, 
you've probably seen changes within yourself and how you're realigning what it is that you need to do yeah. to make sure that you can do your best to include important people like your your daughters and your wife as oh, part of sure. that as well. Yeah. So Joe, here we are. It's yeah. amazing. You know, it's so great to have you on the podcast and, yeah. and, uh, I was really looking forward to you coming to, to sit with us Yeah. and, uh, boy, oh boy, we've, uh, we've had quite a few adventures, you and I, <laughs> you know, perhaps you could tell our listeners how we, uh, how we even first met. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing to be sharing this experience with you at this point in our journey, I guess you could say, I mean, it goes back to 2002, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started teaching, a uh, very first semester, starting in January uh, at Nipissing University. And uh, you were in one of the classes I was teaching. And uh, I couldn't have gotten through that semester without your help in a lot of ways. That was an opportunity where I was literally thrown in mid-semester, sort of sink or swim situation. And so it identified that the role of a teacher is not just to convey information, but to work alongside their students, right? And, and there was a lot of give and take there <laughs> during that first term uh, when I was trying to yeah. navigate the uncertainty week to week. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's one of those things. I mean, here you are hopping on a moving rocket ship. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Rocket ship with maybe a few nuts and bolts coming loose along right. the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and trying to get that all sorted out as well. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, it was a it was a lab that uh, that was introducing the t test, yeah, which is uh, yeah, an I, interesting beginning. Oh my goodness! I'll never forget sitting in the office with Dr. Dave Hackett, who's a good friend of mine and a wonderful professor who's retired now from Nipissing University, taught environmental science there for over 30 years, and I sat in his office and said, "So." it says here in the lab manual that the first lab will be the t-test. And he said, yep. And I said, okay, so are we analyzing some data that was collected before? And he said, nope. I said, okay, (laughs) is this one of several analytical techniques that I'm teaching? Nope. So (laughs) it was just sort of let's go and just sort of teach in a nutshell this one particular statistical technique. One, you know, the t-test is one of many ways you can analyze data. And what was fascinating to me was that in the scramble in those 24 to 48 hours before actually standing in front of students, I got a clarity about what the t-test was that exceeded anything I'd ever had in the other courses when I studied statistics or actually learned, quote unquote, about the t-test. Because, you know, as as Richard Feynman, that famous physicist, would say, you learn things better when you teach them. And so it was when I was trying to unpack this to stand in front of a group of students to try to teach this that all of a sudden I thought, oh, that's why this is like this and that's like that. So it was an interesting experience for as both a learner and a teacher. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And and, and often for labs, you're not just working with that one crew you would have or section. You would have numerous sections. Which, yeah, that's actually an, an interesting point. The thing that I loved... That, that is at one time a challenge and also great about that format of teaching multiple sections is that it's perhaps in other educational settings, not there's no opportunity to take that little tweak that you identified you could make in one section and then actually get a chance to deliver it and hone that delivery in the next section. So that, that, that multiple section teaching is something that I've benefited from as an educator 
because, you know, and, and I hate to almost admit it because it sounds like that first section gets a raw deal. Yeah. Um, but inevitably, the more you do something, the better you get. And sure. so I'd find that by the third, fourth section, you know, you're just knocking it out of the park because oh, you yeah. realized all the little mistakes you were making right. before. That's right. And you can almost predict where those areas of concern would be, would be and you can kind of fill those holes even beforehand, which is always nice. Yeah. And I also remember um, you met our, our dog early early on at that time oh, too and absolutely, uh, yeah. and uh he he was a part of uh, one of the labs as well oh he deserves special attention check him <laughs> as uh he deserves commendation as the reason one of those labs was as amazing as it was i remember we were to look for signs of a wildlife on the winter trails which i am so fortunate at nipissing university to have that trail network behind campus an incredible network of trails on uh, acres and acres of forested yeah, land. Absolutely stunning. Oh, it's beautiful. But it, I was very new to it and didn't know that trail system that well. But luckily, you brought Chekhamis with you, and that dog just started sniffing out. And so I'd pretend as though I had knowledge of all of these sort of trails <laughs> of wildlife beforehand. But no, it was Chekhamis. Chekhamis was leading that lab that day. <laughs> it's true. I mean, he it was such commonplace for him to be back there oh, yeah. that he, he's right at home. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really fun. Absolutely. And I just thought that was such an, you know fortuitous way for us to meet anyways because we've shared so many experiences uh, in the outdoors and also mm -hmm. in the backcountry we haven't done as much canoe tripping as we've done in the past which we did quite a bit of mm -hmm. but I know both Andrea and I have fond memories of uh, going on trip with you we were lucky enough to be in Algonquin Park and mm -hmm. uh, Clarney and uh, doing some fairly remote stuff too oh, yeah. as well, which was nice. Yeah, you and Andrea really revealed to me what light, light camping or a minimal footprint camping really is. I mean, we wouldn't, when we would camp, we wouldn't even really make campfires because, of course, if you're doing that, over and over again, you're really taking from a lot of the mm -hmm. the wood that's available around a particular yeah. location. So we were just using the whisper light, right, to cook that's with right. and yeah. just appreciating where we are without having to extract from yeah. the landscape. And that was, I'd never camped that way. It was always yeah. just simply, let's build the biggest fire we can. And, you know, those are the, <laughs> the typical, maybe not always typical, but yeah. in Northern Ontario that ha does happen. But camping with you and Andrea was a very different experience and one that I really cherish. I really, and we, we still do even to this day, and, you know, there, there, there will be times where we will harvest wood, and it's often not from those sites, and we have to move away from them to be able to extract the necessary wood to be able to get the f fuel that we need. But, again, more times than not, we'll, we're going to go with a very low footprint and also travel through as best as we can without having too many interruptions either because mm -hmm. it really is helpful to be able to unpack something and pack something up fairly quickly and uh, be on your way too. Yeah. Because there's oh, so and, much and to see and do. I have to throw in too, because uh, it needs to be archived for all time, that <laughs> without a doubt, you are someone who can predict a rainfall yeah. within 30 minutes better than anyone I've ever met in right. my life. I remember being on trip with you. You'd look up at the sky and say, oh, well, we better pull over and set things up because we got about 30, 40 minutes before rain. Yeah. And... Almost to the second, yeah. it would then start raining. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> it'd be the odd thunderstorm yeah. that rolled its way through in that one particular trip in Tamagami. Yes. And uh, so I think that one was a five-day trip, and I think we were somewhere yeah. around uh, 100 kilometers for that one. That was an unreal one, yeah. Yeah. The, and, remember uh, when we put in, it was like 35 degrees Celsius at it, 2 o'clock it, in the it morning? Was, yeah. It was just an intense heat at the beginning. It was, and I couldn't believe, though, that Lady Evelyn Smoothwater, mm. the, the, that's the park, but Lady Evelyn Lake, yeah. there was no cool down. Even the water temperature was mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Yeah, It yeah. was a soupy, like very odd. Yeah. There's something very uncharacteristic as well. Perhaps it's the amount of sand that rimmed a good section of that section of the lake where we stayed. But I remember struggling to dive down deep enough just yeah. to get some refreshing cooler <laughs> yeah, exactly. temperature water. Yeah, it yeah. was hot. <laughs> and uh, and that was quite the trip. And I know that you worked through uh, probably a bit of heat stroke on oh, that yeah. one as well. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, we, we, we took the it. time that we needed. And then I perhaps the day after you maybe meditated through that entire day and oh, yeah. uh, just tried to build up your electrolytes. Yeah, paddling and, does uh, that. It's a yeah. very mindful experience mm-hmm. you when you're paddling you know and, and I've, I've noticed that that when you're in a canoe paddling the destination doesn't appear as though it's getting closer right. I find that's a very bizarre phenomenon when I'm in a canoe you just see that yeah. that portage that mm-hmm. you think is at the end of this body of water yeah. and if you are impatient you will just drive yourself crazy because it's just not getting any closer. It, right. You know, you, you paddle and paddle, look up. Oh, wait, it still looks yeah. as far away as it was five minutes ago. So I think that's sort of a, a lesson I had to learn with paddling and maybe translate that in other parts of life mm-hmm. too, that you have mm-hmm. to just stay in the moment yeah. and not worry about whether or not you've gotten another 100 meters closer to that portage because yeah. you just have to stay focused on where you are. You're right. And <laughs> I mean, times have really changed too. And our tripping never involved cell phones because that wasn't even a part of the equation mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. They just weren't around. Right. Right. So, but at the same time too, finding that mindfulness or being in moments was still important back then as well. Oh yeah. Just to be like, no, this is where I am. Yeah. This well, is what that, I'm to doing. To me, that's, yeah, this that's is who the I'm difference. With. Very primal. Yeah. Very simplistic. Yeah. And, uh, and to be able to find, I, I, I've always found it to be a nice way to recalibrate Absolutely. What, what's important. And, yeah. uh, and we have to live with ourselves and be in our moments as best as possible. Living in our moments is such a, a nice way to be because it allows us to be in a, a good state, uh, a good and hopeful balance wherever we're at in our lives at that time. And it also gives us a chance to be able to often project good things when we give ourselves the time to think and to ponder and to be light and to be loving towards ourselves, it's a really nice way to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that, you know, it's interesting when the word camping gets used because it can refer to so many different things. But being on a canoe trip, on a minimal footprint canoe trip, is such a different experience from other forms of camping. It's mm-hmm. probably the only time I would say that you come out of the experience more rejuvenated and with more energy than you had when you started versus, you know, a car camping experience where you have to pack the entire house into the back of your car and drive to a provincial park and, Mm -hmm. you know, 
look for plugs and outlets mm-hmm. and try to get in a hike if you can and That's struggle right. with all yeah. the things. It's almost as though you're taking your, your city struggles and you're bringing them to a provincial park. But yeah. but a canoe trip is just, it's really about trying to live in those moments of peace. Mm-hmm. And, and because there's so little for you to, you know, interact with, you're just forced to sort of sit on the granite and uh, that's right. stare at the lake because your body is for sure aching from the paddling and the portaging, <laughs> but in a good way, in that yeah. sort of way yeah. that forces you to sort of think about where you are and yeah. you couldn't have, you know, we're so lucky in this part of the world to have so many amazing spots to go to. It, that's so true. And I also think about the amount of campfires that you and I have enjoyed together mm. and, uh, oh, yeah. and the importance of that too. I mean, I don't know, perhaps some nights and depending on how long we've been sitting around, we've solved many problems in the world, <laughs> Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Or perhaps not, but certainly pondered many things and shared many stories for sure and uh, and many more to come. And Joe, I, and it's something I haven't really thought about in a while either, but you emceed our wedding. <laughs> yes. Yeah, in, uh, in Quebec, it's Chambly, yeah. Quebec. Yeah, that was an incredible experience. It was my first wedding of that type which had a official venue and sort of a formal schedule i had emceed previously but it was a, a less formal kind of a, a gathering for another friend so i had some experience emceeing but the experience at your wedding was an introduction to recognizing what an MC really is and i mean again that kind of comes back to an educational foundation of, of what it means to coordinate, to communicate. So it was, yeah, it was a really incredible experience. Yeah, that was really fun. And that was uh, where the Chambly River came out. And, uh, you know, I remember with Andrea, we, uh, and we had our, our dog, Chekmas. He was a big uh, collie shepherd, weighed about 90 pounds. And uh, he was our paddle partner too. Mm-hmm. And we went up uh, to Fort Chambly and uh, we ran through... Uh, some of the rapids that were there and then we paddled back and I remember coming in and just seeing all our friends there, how amazing that was. And also really the dance party at the end of the night and just everyone just having fun, you know? Yeah. 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 And I mean, as, as the MC, I really, in that experience, because I have done it a couple of times since and you experience a wedding so differently as an MC relative to as a guest. And I take that as a, not only the responsibility, but also it's a position of honor. Like I'm very mm-hmm. honored to be, you know, tasked with kind of organizing the event, making sure things happen when they happen. So you don't sort of recognize what's happening in the background to ensure that something's happening when it's supposed to, or right. tracking someone down in the background who needs to do something at yeah. a certain time. But that I love that yeah. sort of being in the background and having a capacity to help an event like that, you know, I'm not saying that it was only because of me that it was a good experience, but I think anybody who has emceed will be able to reflect yeah. on that experience. Well, you're of, moderating that process yeah. and, and also finding the pacing, yeah. the troubleshooting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, perhaps uh, those stories are best for another time, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah, in allowing for that flow to take place and oh, yeah. uh, you were the right guy for the job. That's for sure, Joe. So yeah, it's really great that we, we can discuss these things and it really brings up some nice memories. Oh, for sure. It was and, amazing. Uh, I'd like to ask you uh, about your educational uh, journey, Joe. Tell us about your educational journey 
beginning from uh, leaving your hometown of Timmins mm -hmm. to completing your master's degree. Okay. Wow. Well, uh, 1993 was when I graduated from Timmins High and Vocational School in Timmins, Ontario, and then ventured down south to Guelph, Ontario to complete a Bachelor of Science and degree, which was a specialized honors degree, specialized honors in pure and applied ecology, uh, which was really just meant that I fulfilled a series of course requirements that the registrar's office then sort of rubber stamped things at the end to say, yes, you've accomplished this task. And it was a real eye-opening experience to go from living in Timmins and then head down to Guelph for those four years. I remember experiencing a fall for the first time <laughs> because in Timmins, yeah. uh, leaves are still clinging to trees when the snow starts to fall. Yeah. And I'll never forget, you know, on that campus at the University of Guelph, which is such a beautiful campus, just the accumulation of the leaves from the maples and, and other deciduous trees on campus. Uh, it would just pile up two, three feet thick in some places. And, you know, the ability to walk around in just a sweatshirt in October was something so foreign to me. So yeah, I went to Guelph for four years, then took a brief hiatus and, and earned some money. I lived in London, Ontario. Some of my friends were finishing their undergrads at the University of Western Ontario, and then did a little bit of backpacking in Europe. But then the following year, started my Master's of Science in Forestry at the University of Toronto with the Faculty of Forestry. And that was a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, U of T is a massive institution, but really it's a collection of smaller schools and colleges and faculties. And the Faculty of Forestry was such a, at the time I was there, so from uh, 1999 to 2001-ish, uh, was just an incredible, vibrant, active community of professors and students. And uh, yeah, that, that was that experience. Yeah, it was, it was a great time. It was sort of the first time when you're seen by the professors almost more as an equal. Right? And that was an interesting experience, being a grad student at U of T at that time. You know, professors are looking to you for your opinion on things. And I remember that being quite startling at first, but it was a great, great place to, to study for a couple of years. I must assume that your teaching began probably at U of T, as a part of completing your master's. Yeah, in, in the second year of my master's, I applied for and was able to uh, start a, a TA-ship at what's now called the University of Toronto Mississauga, but was at that time, so we're going back to the beginning of the 21st century, it was called Arendale College. And I, rem I taught with Dr. Peter Kotinen, who was an ecologist, still there, I believe, uh, at UTM. And it was a third year ecology course. And I can remember in that experience, the first inklings of what I now know is imposter syndrome. And at the time, I just felt, who am I, this master's candidate, you know, master's student, who is now going to be teaching students who are in third year of their undergrad at the University of Toronto? And I'll never forget sitting in Dr. Kotinen's office and he, you know, I, I expressed this concern. It was before the first teaching session. And he just looked at me and he said, Joe, I guarantee you're going to know more than they know. And he just put it to me that way. And I yeah. thought, oh, well, I mean, I'm not sure about that, but it sort of was it, it giving me that sense that 
it's not necessarily about knowing everything. Mm-hmm. It's about being there to contribute something and then being willing to exchange back and forth with your students. So the importance of authenticity yeah. rings home, you know, you need to be Joe and the yeah. best Joe possible yep. and explaining things in the best way that you know how and leaving it out on the table and accepting what comes from that. Mm-hmm. And there isn't much more than that. No. And I know that the imposter syndrome for people who teach at any level is something to be grappled with when they start something new because you always feel you need to be more than you really are, but you couldn't be further from the truth when you believe that. Yeah, exactly. There's such a, an importance of maintaining humility mm-hmm. in a teaching environment. It's okay to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And as long as you then undertake the experience of filling the gap in knowledge that you might share with your student. But, you know, the idea that you should be knowledgeable in all things in every way is just an unrealistic position to be in for any teacher. Right. But now we look at almost two decades later, Joe, and perhaps that lends itself well to you being a very popular instructor at Nipissing University. And in my estimation, one becomes popular when they are effective in their teaching methods, engagement with students and have a positive impact on their learning experiences. You know, I think this recognition, Joe, is a result of your passion for education and your ability to connect with others. So how did your post-master's experiences inform your teaching journey? Well, I, what won't come up on the podcast very well is that me cringing a little bit when you say I'm a popular instructor. Yeah. I, I, I hope that that is something that uh, might be true for some of my students. I will say, though, if I come back to your question, which is about what happened after my master's, Mm -hmm. was that I really took a leap of faith and uh, followed a trajectory that certainly is not the traditional next step for someone who's just Mm -hmm. completed a master's of science and forestry degree from the University of Toronto Faculty of Forestry. I was just finishing up the thesis defense and sort of wrapping up everything that I needed to. And I got an email out of the blue from a friend of mine who I did my undergraduate with at the University of Guelph. And she was living in British Columbia at the time and said, Joe, I'm going to Korea to teach English. Do you want to go? And it was one of these moments in life where you can almost picture the the fork in the road, right? Yeah. Like that famous The door poem. opened, right? And you walk in or you don't. Do I take this? And yeah. I thought, well, why not? And so it just immediately, all of my energies then went into making that happen. And it, it, though it made no sense, it was the best thing I ever could have done. And in fact, I was very lucky because my roommate, when I was at the University of Guelph, uh, Owen Lewis, his brother, Trevor Lewis, was teaching in Seoul, South Korea at that time, he and his wife, Susan. And so they were able to help me navigate the experience of not only getting my visa together, but also which company I would work with. Because ultimately, the company sort of owns your working visa. At least that's the way it was at the time. And so I was so fortunate to have these people who could help me. So it's just, again, so much about being willing to take risks, but then also being willing to receive help from people that can help guide you along the way. So you decided that it was time for for a change. A love of travel needs to be continued to step outside your comfort zone, see new things, yeah. tastes, <laughs> smells. So literally, I can only imagine what it would have been like 
to have stepped off the airplane, worked your way through the airport, and then here you are. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it inc- like, just a culture shock is a word or a phrase that only really takes on meaning when you viscerally experience it, and I certainly did. You know, the thought that came to mind is just that when else in my life am I going to be able to experience this? So I decided to commit to it, and it was a 16-hour flight, which just is these these facts about our world that I find so mind-blowing. How does something stay in the air that long? Right. When you're 12 hours into yeah. it, you still have four hours left to go. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And upon arriving in Seoul, I remember being met. The time difference is 13 hours, so you're just your circadian rhythms are just upside down. And I remember being brought to the hotel room and I walked in and the person who drove the vehicle to get me there immediately just gave me this shocked look and I looked at him and the person who was from London, Ontario, actually, who was the person working for the company said, oh, you didn't take your shoes off. So some of these, you know, features of the society and the cultural uh, norms that I just wasn't wasn't even aware of, you know, were hit me right away. And then I remember the first few days experiencing what I kind of described after the fact as a an understanding bubble, which is a strange way of thinking about things. But there was this space around me where I understood my own thoughts, but I couldn't understand any of the conversations that were happening. And I couldn't understand any of the signs because they were all written in Korean. And so it was a very unnerving experience to just not understand anything that's going on around you. So, yeah, it was a pretty shocking experience at first, but then amazing after I got used to things a little bit more. So here you are, finished your master's, now in Seoul, Korea, and you're going to work as a teacher. And again, being so lucky because of Trevor and Susan, who were able to secure me a job with the oldest English teaching institute in Seoul, which is called Pagoda. Uh, I'm not sure if it still is in operation there, but it might be. It was a, it had multiple locations in Seoul. The institute I worked at was in Gangnam, so that's a part of Seoul, South Korea, from which that song Gangnam Style oh, yeah. uh, is meant to represent. Uh, a very affluent part of Seoul, and the institute occupied the sixth to the 12th floor of a giant office building in in Gangnam. And because of Trevor and Susan, they had spent time, in fact, Susan was the head teacher and and manager at one of the other institutes. And she was so kind to give me all of her teaching materials, but more than that, the philosophy behind how to Mm -hmm. teach English as a second language in an effective way. And it really could be boiled down to two words, and that is maintaining understanding. And that's something that has stayed with me since my experience as an ESL teacher in South Korea, because obviously when you're teaching uh, English conversation classes, maintaining understanding is an important concept. You want to make sure that your students are understanding what's being said by you as the teacher and by their cohorts in the class. But it's universal. It doesn't matter if you're teaching biology, chemistry, physics you really want to maintain understanding with those that you're teaching. So it's, it was a philosophy that really was ingrained in me, you know, at that time that I use to this day as something to ensure that I'm, you know, maintaining understanding with my students. It must have been 
just a, a mixture of emotions, I would think. And so character defining too. And I mean, there's only so much you can do with sign language, right? Or oh. pointing and grunting and, you know, working and uh, trying to explain a language that's hard enough to learn on its own. Absolutely. And yet teach that too. And Korea is it's such a wonderful culture. It's an amazing place. And it's the first time I, as a Canadian, had lived somewhere where everyone in the place, or I shouldn't say everyone, but because Seoul did have people who were there that weren't from Korea, but the vast majority of people in Seoul, South Korea, were Korean. And as a Canadian who is used to living in a much more diverse culture, it was interesting that the society itself was ingrained with certain Confucianist philosophies. Mm -hmm. And then as a teacher in a Confucianist society, it was so bizarre because of the reverence mm -hmm. for the teachers. Yeah. And it was to the point where I remember walking down the hallway in the Institute and students would step back and bow mm -hmm. a little bit, you know, not a full bow, but mm -hmm. would sort of yeah. bow Big a little knowledge. bit in the hallway as you're walking by, cause you're the teacher. Yeah. Uh, these were students who were usually professionals who were trying to improve their TOEFL and TOEIC scores those, in order to be able to get advancements in their career. So they were um, certainly mature students in their 20s and 30s and 40s. But that's not to say that that kind of respect didn't happen even at younger ages, but those were my students. And I, it was just such a bizarre reality. It was almost something that could st stroke your ego a little bit because right. you're in this environment where there's such reverence and respect mm -hmm. for the teacher, which is sort of at the highest level of society. Executionist so, perspective yeah. of things. And so you spent better part of a year mm -hmm. there and uh, then you departed yep. and did you travel or did you come back to North America? Traveled a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the institute I taught at would was where the courses were broken into one month courses and so when it was time for to take time off you'd take a full month off gotcha. um, and so cool. near the end I did take a month and I traveled through Thailand and that was again mind-blowing yeah. uh, incredible place to visit and uh, I was lucky, I must admit, so a bizarre phenomenon, not related to teaching, but the food in Korea is very spicy by North American standards, at least for me anyway. And after two months of living there, I, my tolerance for spice noticeably changed. I bet. And whether that was a turnover of taste buds in my mouth or whatever other physiological yeah. processes go into that, but I could eat the food. I could... Yeah. You know, what was initially painful and difficult to eat was more, I, all, of a, all of a sudden, quite flavorful and delicious. What my, was the strangest snack or what was the strangest My favorite food? dish, and still to this day, if I'm in a Korean restaurant and, you know, people who are Korean might, when I spoke to my Korean colleagues and friends in, in Korea, they would sort of downplay this dish as sort of maybe being too simple a dish or, mm. or not sophisticated enough, but I loved it. It was called dolsut bibimbap. Mm. And dolsut means hot stone bowl. Bibimbap means mixed vegetables and rice. It's literally a stone bowl that comes right out of the oven. So if you touch it, you would burn yourself. Mm -hmm. And the rice on the bottom is sort of starting to crisp mm. as it is uh, in contact with this hot bowl. And 
in Korea, I don't think they serve it this way in North America, but they would just crack a raw egg on top of the mixed vegetables, sometimes some, some marinated beef that was cooked, and, and you would then start to stir it and cook the egg as you're stirring it. And the, the aromas would just come off of the, oh, it was absolutely my favorite dish. I'd have it every day if I could. That's fine. So yeah, yeah, amazing food. Yeah, it sounds like you had an incredible experience, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sure it was, in some instances, hard to leave. But yeah, we we know when 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 it's good to go to. And well, one can I just jump in one more story about the oh please do. the perspective yeah, of of Confucianist society yeah. and where I found myself positioned. Mm-hmm. I one one near the end of my time teaching in Korea, I taught a gentleman by the name of Mister Lee, and we were going around the table on the first day and I would typically say, you know, hello, you know, introduce yourself, say your name and where you work. And so it went around the table and when it got to Mr. Lee, he said, well, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. (laughs) And I thought that was, and that was the first time I'd ever had a student sort of throw that joke at me and it took me off guard. And so Mr. Lee and I became very good friends and near the end of the month, he asked me if I would be willing to teach his wife and give her private lessons, which I must reference that was actually illegal. I could have lost my visa huh. because you weren't allowed to teach on the side okay. when you were in Korea. The company owned your visa. That's the only person right. you could teach with. So although most people did teach privately, it was something you were doing with a certain risk associated because hmm. the company could pull your visa if they wanted to. And it turned out that Mr. Lee and his wife were both judges. They were both district court judges. So it's ironic that he mm. was asking me to yeah. participate in this illegal activity. Yeah. Yes. And I'll never forget the experience of going to meet his wife for the first lesson. Yeah. And it was at this location. Essentially, I would navigate Seoul just by going to a, a subway station. So I got to the subway station, and when I got to the district courthouse, I mean, this thing was massive. You know, I think it had 11 or 12 floors, and I was certainly the only Mm non-Korean in eyesight. Like, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people around. Different feeling. A very busy place on a typical day. But what would someone who's from Canada have any business doing in a district courthouse in Seoul, South Korea? So I got certainly some looks as I'm walking in the front door. I get in the elevator, and I was told to go to the ninth floor. Well... Mm -hmm. The ninth floor on the little display of buttons was this special fancy button because it was the judge's lounge. So what, what, again, it, it's a fancy button in the elevator. Oh, it, it was marked off, sort of like oh. you know a, a penthouse floor kind of thing, okay. right? And yeah. so everyone else was pushing floor four, floor five, floor three, wherever they had to pay a parking ticket or whatever other yeah. business they had there. And I push, you know, I'm this guy pushing this special ninth floor, floor button. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. The door opens at the ninth floor and I walk in and there's an assistant to Mrs. Lee, who's going to be my student. And I'd never seen someone bowing as low Hmm. as this assistant was, because when she turned from me to turn to Mrs. Lee, she would stand a little bit more upright, but still bowing. Because as a judge, you're at a very high position in society, so a subordinate would have to bow. But then when she turned back to me, she had to bow even further because I was the teacher of her boss. Oh, interesting. It was such a bizarre... So just again, that that kind of reverence for the position of teacher that... 
you know, is, is uh, an interesting cultural phenomenon that I experienced when I was there. So yeah, Mrs. Lee and I had several uh, lovely conversations. She was on her way to be a visiting scholar at Stanford University. Yeah. So we had, I think, seven sessions where we just chatted in English. She wanted to get some practice yes. doing what you and I are doing right now. Yeah. So yeah. That's cool. What a neat story. That's for sure. Well, Joe, I'm thankful that Mr. Lee decided that you were worth keeping on this planet. <laughs> And you transitioned back into North America. Yep. And what pulled you? Where, where did you end up? So then I ended up teaching like with you in mm -hmm. uh, North Bay at Nipissing University. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, an amazing experience because it, it opened a type of teaching at the post-secondary level that I'd never experienced before. The classes were so small, mm -hmm. as you know, and, and it was an opportunity to engage with students so i just finished teaching where you know maintaining understanding and in these the classes were no bigger than 10 or 12 people in that conversation uh english second language conversation classes they were quite small classes so the transition to nipissing was i was so fortunate to still be in these small class environments and and i think it was maybe a really nice segue into uh because i'd just been so lucky to have that small intimate teaching environment that I was able to sort of employ some of the methods and techniques mm -hmm. that I had used in these English as a second language classes. So it felt more comfortable yeah. uh, being in these small classes at Nipissing University. And I just loved it ever since I first started teaching there. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And it's true, Nipissing University is a smaller university, and that's why I chose to attend it. And thankful that we met there. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a nice way to learn your craft and also, as you mentioned earlier, having numerous sections to be able to cultivate that craft a little bit more and uh, give you a chance to sort things out and the style that might work best and the delivery and the speed and so on, because you have a specified period of time that you need to execute yeah. and to do so as best as you can. And if I remember correctly, uh, that was on contract. Yep. And then... Um, you decided to uh, to head off, yeah. Because I remember joining you to ski, and yep. that was, if, if I'm not mistaken, that was uh, you went to the Sault Ste. Marie. Yep, Searchmont, beautiful place to yeah. ski. Yeah, so the the contract did elapse, as you said, and I guess there was a, a pull towards the the training I'd had with the Masters of Science and Forestry, and I was very fortunate to uh, land a few very short term contracts with the Canadian Forest Service at what's called the Bug Lab uh, in Sault Ste. Marie with the Canadian Forest Service there in technology transfer uh, initially. And then I was able to translate that into another contract uh, with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources, or at least that's what it was called at the time, with the Ontario Forest Research Institute, or OFRI, in Sault Ste. Marie. And that was a, an incredible experience to work alongside uh, some research scientists on a climate change-related project. But there were, you know, a couple of factors, one being that, you know, in, in that era uh, for that type of work, things were contractually limited. Yes. And I really felt the pull. I yeah, felt I that I missed teaching a lot. And uh, an opportunity arose again in 2004 to return in Ipissing, and I jumped at it. Mm -hmm. And I've been there since 2004. Amazing. Amazing. And no doubts you've seen things come and go during that time period, and you've also my guess is taught many different courses as well. And when we start anywhere new in teaching in our teaching career, 
and it doesn't matter where you're teaching at any level, you sometimes end up with uh, the dog's breakfast, mm-hmm. as it's been called. Yeah. Or you end up in areas that others do not necessarily want, and hence the reason for a vacancy. Yeah. And then we put in our time, and we make our efforts, and we make the, those things great. And then, of course, we settle into other areas that we have greater expertise in, yeah. where we remain, and then we can foster and cultivate those things a little bit more. Yeah. Can you talk about that process starting in 2004? Absolutely. So I think as a fellow teacher, Terry, I think you'd be able to recognize that although what surrounds you in an institution is constantly changing and yes. constantly facing struggle and challenge, what stays the same is what happens when you close the door and you're yeah. with your students. The right? things you can control. And, and it's just that, that environment mm-hmm. where you're trying to contribute to helping others to gain more knowledge or to, you know, to provide them with additional skill to be able to succeed in their lives. And that's what stayed the same. And, you know, yes, the institution has changed quite a bit, as all institutions do. But what stayed the same and what's really, you know, kept me motivated to continue is, is that experience with the students. As, you know, students obviously, of course, change over time too. I remember, uh, this is going to date me, but at the beginning of my time at Nipissing, it would be not uncommon to see students sitting in a hallway waiting to get into the lab and none of them would have cell phones and some of them might even be engaged in conversation. Yeah. Um, in 2023, not so much. No, no it's silent. <laughs> Everyone's on their phones, on right? Their phones. So there are some changes in terms of sure. the students themselves and the, the society at large. But mm-hmm. when you're in that room with students mm-hmm. and uh, you're able to engage in these small classroom environments, it's still just as addictive. It's amazing. Yeah, now I've been privy to some of your lectures as well and enjoyed them immensely so you would have from small groups and 200 or so as well, depending yeah. on what it is that you're lecturing about and or the particular course that you're instructing in. Yeah, that was a part of uh, the journey that I had and, and maybe is a unique part of being an instructor at Nipissing University because initially I was only teaching the lab portions of courses and loved doing that. But then in 2009, uh, a transition in personnel was such that there was an opportunity to teach the lecture portion of first-year biology. And just like what happened when I was at Arendale College with Dr. Coton, an imposter syndrome came knocking at my door again. And I thought, who am I to be someone at the front of the room teaching this first-year biology course? And it was a, a very good friend and colleague, Karina Irwin, who sort of you know, was the person to give me that slap across the face and say, you know, you have every right to be at the front of that room as someone else. Mm -hmm. You can contribute to those students as well as other people, as long as you commit to doing as good a job as you possibly can. And, and, and she was right. I, when I decided to commit to the experience, it was again, just so incredible to be with students, particularly first year biology students who are just transitioning from high school into this university setting. Mm -hmm. It's a very different environment. So, you know, there's a certain, authenticity and a certain kind of, I, I don't want to see naivete, but, but students who are coming into university mm-hmm. aren't yet kind of 
cynical and bitter yet, which can kind of accumulate over the years when you're at any institution so because true. of some of the shortfalls or some of the problems you have, right? Yeah. They're very optimistic still, very uh, open-minded. And so teaching at the first year level, I find just so enriching and so rejuvenating. I just love working with people when they're first transitioning to university. It's nice to be around people who are open to the world yeah. because we both know that until someone's ready to absorb that learning, they're not. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in that environment immediately, then once we feel comfortable with our knowledge and our understanding of things, then we can find different ways to apply it and to communicate about it. Yeah. And I, and I guess that's why I mentioned earlier on why you are popular that way, because it's something that you enjoy crafting as a part of your practice. And I know that's something that you've spoken often with me about that influence or community of practice that really helped you with that understanding too. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of community of practice has come into uh, what I do in ways that have certainly transformed my practice as an educator. In 2012, I was uh, lucky enough to be having some great conversations with the person who was a representative from Pearson Publishing, to be honest, her name is uh, Ruth Saxalber, and she would, you know, of course, we're, she's there to represent Pearson Publishing and talk about products and resources that they had available, but we would engage more deeply into conversations about pedagogy, and it was one of the first times I had someone willing and interested in talking about something I find so interesting myself. Um, and in fact, given the conversation we were, ha we were having, she said, there's an event happening in Toronto called the Biology Leadership Forum. And it was a gathering meant, it was, you know, hosted by the publishing company, but it was meant for people who are teaching biology at universities around the province to come to Toronto and to, you know, share resources and talk about best practices. And I, at first, was quite unsure whether I would go. And again, imposter syndrome knocking on the door. Right. And thought to myself, who am I to sit amongst these experts and these professors from other universities? Mountains of knowledge. So I went. It was at uh, the gorgeous hotel down on Front Street, um, the Harborfront Castle. Uh, I believe the NHL was having like a Hall of Fame thing. So I bumped into Lanny McDonald in the elevator. That's cool. <laughs> during the event, you know, That's it was cool. it was definitely a a, a very cool. uh, intense experience, and I remember being so nervous going to that first session, and but I fit right in because the kinds of questions that were being asked were the kinds of questions that I had and wanted answers to about how to improve what I do, and I remember making a comment about three quarters of the way through the day where I just was honest with the group and I said, I've learned more in this half day about how to do what I do than I have in the last eight years yeah. of teaching at the post-secondary level. Amazing. And so that was mm -hmm. what I think prompted some of the other people who were part of this forum to say, hey, we've got a group you might want to join. And that's how I learned about the Open Consortium of Undergraduate Biology Educators, the mouthful that you introduced at the beginning, yeah. uh, also called O-Cube which is a group of kindred spirits that I met in 2012, and they absolutely transformed my practice. Um, so they're a wonderful community of practice that have uh, events that are held virtually, but two in-person events during the year, or at least one, 
since COVID, just one in-person event, and it's just an incredible group of people. What is it about Ocube that sets them apart and had you so intrigued? Perhaps was it a format or how things were introduced or how people went about conducting their business during these sessions? What was it for you that, that really had you captivated? Absolutely. The, the first event I attended was uh, in 2014, and it was called, and, and this format is something I've learned a lot about since, but the format is called an unconference. And that's not just meant to be tongue-in-cheek. What that's meant to say is that it's a format where, at least the elevator pitch I remember hearing about it, is that it tries to take the sort of formative conversations that you have with colleagues while waiting in line to get coffee in between sessions and turn those formative and productive conversations into an entire conference. So as opposed to the professor professing at the front of the room in just basically presenting information in one direction, instead an unconference is built the actual uh, schedule and the the sessions that are going to be conducted are built in real time. And the intention is not to convey information unidirectionally, but to come to an unconference with a question for which you need answers. And, and so you pitch your question, you pitch your idea for what you'd like to do a session about. The group votes. How do you pitch that? How, how does that The way we, we've, we've moved to doing things online uh, more recently, but in 2014, you would literally, we'd sit around the room and you'd have to give a 45 second to a minute pitch of what you wanted to talk about. Oh, fun. Everybody goes around the room. And these yeah. the first session, it was only about 30 people in attendance, so a fairly small group. And then there's a vote voting process where people, you know, literally, you know, we, we had some vote nations, as they're called, with, you know, placing little dot colored dots on the pitches themselves, which we gather scatter around the room. In any event, the pitches that have the most votes uh, get positioned into the schedule. Uh, it's sort of a very um, intense and stressful experience at the beginning of that day setting up the schedule. But once it's in place, then you really don't know what's going to happen until you get to the event. And it's sort of the same now, but different. Yeah, it's, how it, you're arriving at what those big ideas or big questions to be discussed would be arrived at differently, but very similar again. Absolutely. And there are there are two types of sessions. Um, and so there's a bigs, which are sort of the big idea sessions that last an hour. And there are gifts, uh, great ideas for teaching is the acronym, which are shorter sessions, mm-hmm. 15 minutes to half an hour. And the intention is that they are structured in a specific way where it's a very focused amount of uh, discussion that requires a, you know, the facilitator is the person who made the pitch. You need a scribe who's going to take notes to kind of keep track of Mm -hmm. everything that's discussed Mm -hmm. and all the resources that get brought up. And you need a timer because it's very important to not stray into the next session. Um, So those those are the the things that have stayed consistent. And you, you just don't know what's going to happen. It's a very creative process where at the end of the day, the kinds of resources that surface and the discussions that happen mm-hmm. are just what take place in real time. It's incredible. Are there rules that govern these things? So because it is a format that requires a 
buy-in from participants. Interesting. Uh, there is there are documents associated mm. that at least I was introduced to. This may mm. not be common to how all unconferences are run, but this particular type of unconference has what's called the page and the rules. And I'll never forget in 2014 when I first read these documents, I thought to myself, what am I getting myself into here? Right. Um, is what is, the rules seems a little strange, but once I did read them and went through them, I realized that the intention there was to make sure that everyone was on the same page, which is literally what is described in the page, kind of describing yeah. what the unconference is about. Yeah. And the rules are there as is described on this document. And I'd be happy to share these with you and as mm-hmm. some resources to, to potentially share here. Thank you. Um, is the, they're based off of the ideas from soccer, where in soccer, you're essentially told what not to do. And then right. through that, you can have this more generative um, complexity that can be fostered through being told that you can't touch the ball with your hands. So then all of a sudden, how you touch the ball becomes up to you, but you're told you can't use your hands. It sounds like a, a mentality. It's, it's a way of, of buying in to and, and finding a common purpose and yeah. a shared repertoire right. so that the individuals in this community of practice come knowing how uh, they should share information. So, for example, some of them are the first rule, which is directly taken from soccer, is no spitting. What's meant, that is literally tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. It's meant to be that you shouldn't be, right. you know, criticizing other people's comments. Mm. A lot of rules are sort of about no complaining. So no complaining about your students. Amazing. No complaining about your yeah. institution. Just leave that for somewhere else. No complaining yeah. about lack That's of resources. Yeah. Um, but rule number five was the rule that hit me the hardest my first time attending. And that rule is no tourism. And so that means that you can't sit back and watch yeah, and be just a passive observer, which to be perfectly honest, in the conferences I've attended, I was more the tourist, unless yeah. it was a session where I was delivering information. And of right. course, I'm, Less the, I'm the professor at yeah. the front of the room. Yeah. But tourism was how I would engage, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, at most conferences. But in this unconference format, that would just, it would die if everyone mm-hmm. sat back and was just, you know, quiet with their hands folded in their lap. And so when I decided to commit to that, it was such a liberating experience Mm -hmm. to know that not only was I going to be asking questions, but others were asking questions as well. So it just sort of has this positive feedback loop of people engaging with each other in a very sincere more of an equal opportunity part where you're expected to be a part of the give and take of things and allow for great things to take place and be a part of be a part of that. Absolutely. The idea of academic rank fell away. Exactly. So someone who was yeah. a full professor at this university right. versus someone who was a graduate student TA at that university right. both had common mm-hmm. ground and w- their ideas and opinions were taken just as seriously. So it was a really incredible kind of format. How commonplace is uh, do you think unconference styles are because re- uh, to be honest that hearing it from you uh, was really the first time for me. And it just sounds like such a dynamic and interesting way to engage in subject matter. They're very special. Uh, I was able, so until recently, until this past year, I'd only ever experienced an unconference with OCube. But more recently, 
uh, through good friend and colleague, Dr. Fiona Rall, who's at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, ran a, an unconference uh, based on a project called Failure, Learning and Progress, the FLIP project. And so it was based on her research, looking at how f the complexities of failure in post-secondary education and, and, and it was an unconference in that we created a set of sessions where we discussed what failure is, mm -hmm. how failure is a part of post-secondary teaching or any teaching. And or in life in general. Life in general. Yeah. And so it was really uh, uh, the only other time I've experienced that unconference format, and it right. was cathartic. It was just incredible yeah. where you engage with these honest discussions with people and, and really get to some incredible places. I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, about that last conference that the the unconference conference that you that you attended i i appreciate that notion and that's something that we've discussed often on this podcast is the the importance of failing forward and that these are ways in which we can activate greater learning to take place as opposed to them being high emotional setbacks like a big strike against us, it's something that we can take as a part of the necessary learning to be able to continue down, down that pathway, yeah. especially when we look at the expectations of ourselves and also the experience that we're in, and we can look at it a little bit differently. We can absorb so much more in those efforts to learn about ourselves, you know, and perhaps failure, it's such a strong word, but... Absolutely. Yeah, failure is so integrated, such an integral part of education in that, you know, we as educators set these arbitrary rules about this is a pass, this is a fail. And that's from the perspective of the educator, but then the students themselves mm -hmm. establish these notions of failure. For some students, getting anything under a 90% on whatever like assignment or test, yeah. that's failure to them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, recognizing that that word failure is so powerful, yeah. um, what that conference enabled the instructors and what was really fascinating was it was, such, it was an interdisciplinary mix. So it wasn't just biology educators as OCube typically is. It was people who were, you know... It's um, across the board, for sure. Yeah, teaching in the humanities. Mm -hmm. There were deans present. There were... Um, it was a few students that had just finished their undergraduate degrees and were going to be starting graduate school in the next fall. And so we were able to get perspectives from recent students uh, and from people that had been teaching for decades in post-secondary. And it really enabled all of us there to... to um, think more carefully and more closely about what failure is and how that word is maybe not the best word to use, but how the process, like you said, of the iteration of, of using the, the failure as a learning experience to just inform what's going to happen next yeah. and the importance of process over product right. and other things like that. It was amazing. But, but it's hard to be in discussion with people about it because of the emotional resonance that uh, that's a part of that, as you mentioned, that someone may feel like they're in failure because they received less than 90%. There's so much of emotional baggage that's a part of that. And as educators, we're not always well-equipped to be able to navigate through, you know, it can almost be like a minefield Absolutely. of a sort. 
but there is still a part of the discussions that do need to take place. And it's so nice to hear that it was so cross-curricular mm -hmm. and there were so many different people who were involved because notionally it's so similar about how we can work with those things. And it's the acceptance of ourselves really and, and how we relate and interrelate with new learning. Yeah. And it's exactly that. It's new. Mm -hmm. So people, as you know, have these expectations that they have set up for themselves when it's something new. But perhaps if we can be a little bit gentler with ourselves mm -hmm. in the newness of mm -hmm. that learning, that a start point and an end point looks so very different. Yeah. But it's to have those necessary conversations with people to know that, oh, no, no, this is, this is where we are as a part of the newness of this. And if we stay the course and we work through those things, that the end point is so great mm -hmm. and the trajectory far exceeds normal place. Right. Which is so nice that way. Yeah. And being more explicit and upfront with learning in terms of it being a process that will involve failure is something that through that, that conference and, and more recently with looking at, at more philosophical um, perspectives on education that the importance of process over product has been something I've, I've identified as, as an important thing as an educator. Having said that, though, I will acknowledge that it's, it's very complex because yes. from, it's easy for me to say, but sure. from a student's perspective, particularly when I, as a biology educator, I, I teach mm -hmm. a lot of students who want to get into medical school. And if you want to get into medical school, you have to get 99.9% .9 in every course right. and you have to be a perfect person and you can't ever fail. Yeah. And so it, it, it's so difficult for students who are accustomed to a certain level of performance, particularly mm -hmm. that's why teaching first year courses is so challenging because it's a very different learning environment. It's very dynamic. Yeah. And so students often will encounter mm -hmm a precipitous, precipitous, <laughs> precipitous <laughs> drop uh, in, in a, a mark that they would achieve from a test or an right. assignment at the beginning of their experience in post-secondary mm -hmm. and really just not understand why they didn't get the mark that they thought they were going to get. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that has been something that through my experience teaching first-year biology, I've tried to incorporate in ways so that there are lower stakes opportunities for students to have the experience of failure right. and recognize that it's not going to ruin your life. It's right. actually when you learn, when you grow right. is when you fail. Yes. But to me and the lensing that I like to, to use when I'm looking at these things, because my age bracket would be just slightly lower than younger than yours. So mostly 16 to 18 whereas you would be, let's say, 18 to 21 as an example, perhaps even 17 too, though, is that it's really the need to understand self-esteem and self-confidence mm -hmm. because it's everything. Yeah. It really is. It's yeah. everything. So it's how do we work through those things? And again, it's that emotional dynamic yeah. that is so difficult to work with, but pedagogically, it has to be included in yeah. that. And and I, and I hear that. It sounds like that's something that you're doing pedagogically sure. is that it's, we will, and there are steps and we are going to move along these steps and we're going to find the successes that we need and the, the failures of the setbacks will not be so vast, 
were so great that we can move forward with them a little bit more. Yeah. And, uh, well, and, can I, can I yeah. give you a concrete example? Mm-hmm. So one way that I've tried to embed an opportunity for students to fail, which mm-hmm. sounds like an awful thing for an educator to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but around 2010, I became aware of these devices called clickers. Uh, more generally, they're called learner response systems. Essentially, it's a use of technology where students can vote in real time a response. And they can shock the professor if they're, no? Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, they, they can, yeah, it would not be nice. They'd love that. But to, to vote in real time to respond to a question that's given during a class. Mm-hmm. And when I was first encountering this technology, uh, I interacted with some colleagues who suggested, you know, Joe, just keep these questions easy. It's really just a way to check attendance and you don't want to stress people out because you don't want to, you know, cause a revolt on your part of your students. You know, just make them kind of, you know, what color is the sky kind of questions. And so that at first kind of, I thought, hmm, that doesn't feel right. So thanks to Google, I, I was able to quickly find uh, and get access to the Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative at the University of British Columbia, which is an incredible source of, of different resources that can be available for instructors at the post-secondary level. And right there was a clicker how-to-use guide that I encountered. And it actually had video testimonials uh, from students. So the first video I watched, the first thing the student said was, you know, what we really hate is when professors have really easy questions and just use this to check attendance. So immediately I thought, okay, I'm 180 degrees wrong here. And what the, you know, guidance I was given from these resources at the uh, Carl Wyman Institute was to make the questions as absolutely challenging as possible or to pick a misconception that's quite common related to the topic and confront students with it right in the class. So something where students normally will make a, a mistake about this. And what I tell the students up front is that, look, these clicker questions are worth very little of your final mark, right? Because there's always that worry, sure. if, I f- if I fail on these questions, am I still going to be able to get into medical school? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, you know, one, when telling them that these are worth very little in terms of percentage, students are still sort of engaged. It's in that you have the, the captive audience. So usually mm-hmm. what I do is I teach for five to ten minutes, then I throw a multiple choice question at them read the question, and I ask them to talk with each other, some peer discussion, and get them to answer a question that is typically really in uh, throwing a misconception at them. And I'm not trying to trick anybody. I'm trying to really have them confront a potential mistake that could happen later on a higher stakes test. So it's an opportunity for students, those who get the question wrong. So when I'm taking up the question after, I can tell in real time, oh, 30% of the students got this one quote unquote wrong. But really what that meant was the students identified what was incorrect about the option they picked. And for that reason, now know something in more depth than they would have before mm-hmm. undertaking that question. There's a sort of psychological commitment when you are saying, no, I know this is C, I've got this. Mm. I know this multiple choice question is C. And so when they identify, oh, wait a minute, he says it's B, why? Mm -hmm. Now there's that sort of, that buy-in, that kind of investment that they have to wanna know, Mm -hmm. why is it B, how come I got this wrong? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an opportunity where, where failure, quote unquote, is incorporated into my classes in a way where this is not failure, this is an opportunity for you to get 
take a misconception mm. out of the equation sure. so that you have this deeper understanding of, of the concept. Right, through discomfort, because yeah. it's not comfortable. Oh, no. And uh, <laughs> it isn't. And, yeah. I, and I think that's where, that's where movement takes place is in that discomfort. For sure. With getting rid of that complacency, so to speak, and, you know, yeah. and setting up a new frame of, of expectations, which is, is I need to, you know, I, I, I don't think you're giving a stress response. Perhaps uh, it would be initially like that. I would yeah. think oh, yeah. that it'd be a stress response. But yeah. once you get past that and get past those stress responses, then people be- become a little bit more acclimated with wanting to work within that process mm-hmm. to use discomfort as a way to challenge their notions Absolutely. of what they're perceiving in their education. I think that's really neat. Yeah. And no doubts that these things have been what's really interested you in your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, can you tell us a bit about your journey and sure and continue to share with us what's inspired you to yeah. uh, to do uh, to pursue a PhD? It really does connect back to the fact that I have been fortunate to teach first year courses for as long as I have. And there is a there, there was a phenomenon that year after year, I would get students coming to visit me during my office hours, which right off the bat are students who are engaged enough to be interested in how well they're doing in the course. So this is a purpose of sample, if you will, of the students in a class. These are the real keeners. And these students would be challenged by the fact that they're just not excelling the way they thought they would. Uh, So perhaps in a previous learning experience, they were able to achieve a certain kind of success, but now on the test that they just finished, the grade just wasn't what they wanted. And what was conveyed to me was a sense of, I don't understand why I don't understand. Interesting. And so you know, what I would try to do is, you know, convey some tips and suggestions Mm -hmm. and, and methods they could try to employ to help them with studying. But what it really revealed to me over the years was, uh, a fact that their metacognition, their ability to think about their thinking, just wasn't where it could be in order to enable them to learn more effectively. So this idea of metacognition, where you're thinking about your thinking, is essentially having a skill at being able to assess your level of knowledge on a topic, quickly identify what you don't know about the topic, and then have the appropriate ability or the, the effective ability to fill those gaps in your knowledge. In a nutshell, I guess that's that's metacognition. And students coming into university tended to, you know, not all students, I shouldn't paint with a broad brush, but there was this challenge, this inability to understand why they didn't understand and inability to understand why they weren't achieving as well as they could. And what it seemed lacking was that these certain skills of being able to um, you know, assess their level of knowledge, to think critically about the knowledge that they were receiving, to be able to synthesize and evaluate their knowledge. These kinds of skills were just not where perhaps they could be. And I really wanted to be able to help with that. Well, in 2021, a good friend uh, and a fellow OCuber, Dr. Nicole Campbell, who's at the University of Western Ontario, came to me with an idea to contribute towards a project which was uh, sponsored through uh, eCampus Ontario. It was a virtual learning strategies project that was to build online modules. These would be open educational resources, so freely available, 
And these modules were meant to develop academic skills. And that was the objective. And I was quite honored to be asked to be a part of this, this project. But upon reflection and thinking about it, I thought, I don't really know enough about these skills per se to be able to put together a module that would be an online resource, an open educational resource. And this, this wasn't an example of imposter syndrome come knocking. This was a legitimate no. identification yeah. that this was a gap in my knowledge sure. as an educator. And there was the light bulb. That was the moment I realized, huh, that's maybe one of the missing ingredients for me to be able to be an effective educator. If, if I don't know enough about how to enhance the skills of my students, maybe there's something there. And so that uh, really did inspire me to um, learn more about academic skills and how they can be woven into university courses in such a way that not only is content being delivered, but a method a process by which students can be more skilled at obtaining this knowledge can be established. So that would be the big question then for you that you're trying to answer is that in itself and through metacognition, it's what, what are the necessary steps that can allow people to achieve greater things in their academic studies? Perhaps I'm simplifying that too far no. greatly, but I think ultimately that's what it is. At least that's what I'm hearing. That's the dream. That's the that's goal. That's the dream. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it is. It's interesting because, you know, at, um, in, in community colleges, which are incredible places for post-secondary learning as well, have uh, circumstances in some programs, I'm not, again, painting with a broad brush, where the skill is directly related to a task, right? If you're mm -hmm. learning to be an electrician, right. if you're learning to be a plumber, if you're learning mm -hmm. to be a pilot, sure. there are skills you get taught and you know how to fly a plane. At least we hope we hope you do. Yes. <laughs> and yes. So so there's these deliver. In, in fact, nursing. You know, the, a lot of professions require a set of skills. And on the you know when someone is a, uh, completing a bachelor of arts or bachelor of science degree, well, what are those skills? What are the skills that are getting delivered that people leave that that educational process? That's with? not often talked about. And see, that's interesting for sure. Yeah. I, I do. I find that very fascinating. Because that's a, a underutilized, not understood area to allow for people to achieve greater success because there's not enough to build off of. There's not enough skills that are entrenched, practical skills that are entrenched, that are entrenched in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so hallway conversations with colleagues might allude to the fact that, you know, there's critical thinking, critical reading skills, communication skills. Right. But to what extent are they being explicitly taught in the right. courses? That's what I find fascinating. And, yeah. and I'm sure many of my colleagues do an amazing work with that. Mm -hmm. But it's it's something that and there is quite a bit of research that looks at developing skills, but much of it is extracurricular or mm -hmm. co-curricular. Co extracurricular yeah. meaning complete separate courses that deal with it, mm -hmm. or co-curricular meaning it might be in a laboratory session of a biology sure. course, for example, where there's a, a workshop mm -hmm. that is, is set up to develop skills. And virtually all post-secondary institutions have you know, amazing professionals right. who work on skills development. So yeah. this is not to suggest that their work is not important. It absolutely is. Mm -hmm. But what I find fascinating is that it would be interesting if faculty, if the professors mm -hmm. that are and instructors that are in these classroom environments 
can engage more explicitly with skills development or Mm -hmm. how would they do that is an interesting question I'd love to try to explore. Yes, I think that's really fascinating because you're not telling anyone to do anything. You're merely asking them to look at themselves and the things that make them great, but to be able to utilize those great things in ways that engage their students. Absolutely. And they are the reason that they have a job. And I have to say that simply that way because it's the same for me my teaching profession as well I have my students this they, they are the reason why I'm there yeah so for me it's intrinsic as it is in you and perhaps in many other people too is again looking at cultivating best practices and I find it so interesting to listen to you and also for, for the years that I've known you is this has always been a part of you is at best practices and perhaps not accepting less, but also finding ways to slowly get better at what it is that we're doing and and improve upon those things. But I think that's interesting though, that I'm wondering what that pushback might be too. Again, you're not telling anyone to do anything and there's this real, and you're looking at a question that requires many layers of understanding to that across many different disciplines But the common part to that, as best as I'm hearing it, is that what is that best practice again that you can use to best engage your audience? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. And it's going to be different for every instructor in every course. And you're absolutely right that it isn't a top-down, thou shalt teach this way. Sage on the stage. it's, It's more taking what I experienced with a community of practice, O Cube, and engaging in that, as you said, intrinsic motivation of what is going to make what I do more enjoyable mm-hmm. and more and not only more enjoyable, but what is going to help those that I'm working with, which are the students, to uh, gain more skill as they move through their educational experience. Yes, to thrive in any way as a student or as an educator requires self-reflection, yeah. active self-reflection yeah. perhaps. And that's the only way that we can truly understand how we can cultivate and foster good things. Yeah. And I say that generally when I say good things, but really that that's inward and that goes from me to we, and that's what we're paid to do. Yeah. You're paid to obviously conduct research and so on. And perhaps that's ultimately that area that you're most pursuant of is in, in research. But again, though, I think what we're speaking to, uh, or at least what I'm hearing is that it's not that element. Sure, it can be reflective, I would think, in how you conduct and, and engage with fellow researchers mm-hmm. underneath you, but it's really about that engagement with uh, with students in, in your room. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and working with instructors in this way is, it. I am looking forward to conducting this research because of the fact that in many ways it, it is unspoken. It's something that is not talked about. Uh, the idea that, you know, I know that many, you know, that, that there are instructors who have um, perhaps very creative and interesting ways of enhancing the skills of their students. So mm-hmm. by no means am I suggesting that post-secondary educators do not already do these things. Mm-hmm. What I'm hoping with my research is to sort of bring some of these to the fore right. and find ways that there can be co-creation right. and, and sharing of these resources right. to better enable other instructors to do the same. There's no one better for this challenge, I think, Joe, because you're trying to avoid preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. 
you're looking for other than that. You're yeah. looking outside of that. Yeah. You're looking to be able to listen to other things to inform best practice. Yeah. And sometimes people aren't always willing to do that. Yeah. You know, so I'm really curious to, to see where this research goes. Me too. And <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, see, see how that develops. Yeah. Yeah. Before recording this podcast, you mentioned to me about getting in crap. <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> so crap, which is an acronym that's not quite CRAP, but CRPP, a critical reflective practice project. So in 2017, May 2017, I was at the O-Cube annual unconference and pitched a session where I wanted to ask the group the question, what's the difference between a novice and expert educator? And there was a paper that I was basing this off of, uh, Auerbach al. if I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, that came out that same year that would that literally investigated that. What is the difference between a post-secondary educator who's an expert versus one who's novice? So there's a lot of questions that come out of that. Well, how do you define expert? How do you define mm -hmm. novice? But the way they went about doing it, one of the elements that they found c consistent among quote-unquote expert educators was a, a continual and consistent, critically reflective practice. So I kind of brought that to the group uh, the uh, community of practice, O-Cube, at the unconference and said, if this is one element, so that's what I focused on, just this critical reflection, if this is an element, how do we do this? How do we manage to incorporate this into our practice in a consistent way? And what really surfaced was sort of a, a logical kind of common sense idea of accountability, mm -hmm. having others who can keep you accountable to mm -hmm. maintain that practice of being critically self-reflective. And so a couple of weeks after that uh, unconference, I was contacted by some great friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Tamara Kelly of York University, Dr. Tanya Noel of Windsor University, or University of Windsor, I should say, and Dr. Nicole Campbell of the University of Western Ontario. And the four of us committed to a year-long project where we would meet weekly on Skype, because this was pre-pandemic, so Zoom didn't exist yet, and we met online uh, for an hour a week and just were essentially describing our experience of what we were doing to reflect on our own practice, to keep each other accountable. But just also, we also focused on, on different uh, books like the, the uh, Brookfield book, Becoming a Critical uh, Reflective Teacher. And I'm probably misquoting that title, uh, but Brookfield is the name of the author of a book that we looked at during the year. Uh, we looked at other papers, other resources, and essentially just engaged in discussions about our teaching throughout the year. And mm -hmm. what, and then at the end of that year, that culminated in a plenary panel discussion at the Western Conference on Science Education in London, Ontario, at, at the University of Western Ontario in July of 2018, uh, or 2019, excuse me. And so this CRPP, Critical Reflective Practice Project, was something that, that unified that group and again sort of revealed to me the power of a com community of practice when individuals are committed to a common purpose and have a common objective of trying to establish something in their practice. It not only enabled us, so it's something that I have maintained to a certain extent, maybe not as mm -hmm. effectively as I did during that year, mm -hmm. but 
the ways in which we exchanged information enabled me to be able to incorporate something I had wanted to incorporate but didn't know how. But having that real-time, continual engagement with these expert teachers, expert uh, educators, enabled me to sort of overcome a hurdle that I had not been able to overcome. And I was able to build something in one of my labs that I wasn't able to do before. And we were really just able to be there to support each other because education is a very challenging, emotionally uh, involving experience that can involve ups and downs. And so we were really able to provide a support network for each other as well. That community of practice just resonates so much with me about that. And almost like that beehive mentality that you're able to have when you're working with people, it's infectious. It's so inspiring to be around and you want to do more about it. And if I'm not mistaken, O-Cube has, uses the, a bee as a symbol <laughs> too, does it not? It does, yes, which uh, resonated for me in another interesting kind of way. So when I first encountered O-Cube, much of the, the letterhead uh, upon which the rules and the page was written had the logo of uh, bees in a hive, suggesting the hive mind. And what it really you know, impacted on me in a way that uh, when I then encountered the song by Blind Melon, uh, the song No Rain. No Rain. That's a, one that I'm, you know, maybe people of a certain age would recognize right away when it comes on. Um, but it, even more in particular was the video for that song because I'm of that age where videos in songs were almost as important as the songs themselves. Um, and in that video, for those of you of a certain age, you know the song I'm talking about, there's a, a little girl who's dressed yeah. in a bee costume at the beginning of the video, and she does a little performance on the yes, stage. I remember. And yeah. uh, isn't the performance isn't no. well received. <laughs> no. And then she goes on a journey walking through a, the streets of a, of a town, of a city, and still is met with strange looks by all the people around her. Uh, but then at the end of the video, she walks into this field. I believe she opens these gates, walks into this big field, and there are you know, all of these people dressed in bee costumes dancing around in the field. <laughs> and so it's, you know, I must say that it's maybe a strange metaphor, but I am kind of like that little girl <laughs> dressed in a bee costume who was able to find, uh, yeah, find my people when I found O-Cube. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really important. And I'm glad you did because those are, have imparted some valuable lessons for you about how you self-reflect about the things that you do and what you're about and how you can foster that and perhaps grow that in other people as well, you know? And I think that's really what community practice is about and also looking at um, trying to find uh, the, the skills that are absent in your learners and trying to fill that void up. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate that very much. Yeah. What keeps you motivated, Joe, and energized throughout this demanding journey? Are there specific goals or values that drive you forward? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, you know, the motivating factor really has changed over time. If I'm thinking particularly in my role as an educator, it really comes down to the in-the-moment experiences you have with students and the ways in which those experiences for me anyway, got better after spending time with these kindred spirits in O-Cube who were able to share incredible 
methods and resources, which then translated into much more effective and enjoyable teaching experiences. So it's sort of a loop there, a cycle that uh, keeps me motivated. And I suppose, you know, you know, my mom would always say that I was born with chalk dust in my blood. Both of my parents were teachers, so mm. maybe there's a gene yeah. for wanting to be Could an be. educator. I'm not mm. sure about that, but um, I think that that desire to... I mean, you know it, Terry. When you're in the moment, you're in front of people, yeah. you are the only one accountable. You're responsible mm-hmm. for the successes and the failures. That's right. There's no one else, no. you know, despite the fact that it might have had nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. There was just some other technical glitch or someone didn't bring the thing they were supposed to at the right time. That doesn't matter. It's on you. That's right. So I think there's a kind of a professional drive to mm-hmm. want to not have those you know, moments flop mm-hmm. <laughs> in real time, yeah. that sort of survival tendency that you want to have right. as an educator. Right, and try and hit flow state instead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a certain element that's fun about rolling with the punches. Oh, yeah. Uh, but when it's obvious to your audience that, you know, things were not set up mm-hmm. the way they could have been, that's an yeah. awful place to be. So I think any teacher wants to avoid those as much as possible. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And being in your moments and being accountable to those moments and still arriving at good things and not living by uh, the letdown of that moment. And I know for some people it can be like that. Yeah. It can be the once that the, they're prescribed or whatever that program was. And if you deviate from that, I've come to realize people get flustered Absolutely. by I, that. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm glad that's not your case. And, uh, and I mean, you just have to roll with it, like you said, sometimes and just make the best of it as well. Yeah. I think in part that's why, you know, teaching really is a vocation, right? It's, it's it really beyond... Is. Certainly, you know, um, there's ways in which teachers are compensated. That's a whole other conversation. But I think really what it comes down to is is those who love to be in that moment as an educator Mm -hmm. recognize that it's beyond what you're getting paid to do what you're doing. You just you want to be there to help contribute to others and you want to try to help them to thrive, to help them to become better people, whether it's acquiring new skills, new knowledge, mm-hmm. a new perspective on the world. Yeah. And uh, there is something to be said about teaching the whole person as best as you can. And we can't, you know, we both have the luxury of often working with less numbers, which makes a huge difference. And it really, it's important, I think, for small class sizes mm-hmm. to take place in any level for those reasons because it allows us to get to know people more that whole person and what they're about and yeah but that's not always the case and we don't always have that luxury that's for sure but it doesn't mean that we don't try for that anyways and making those uh, necessary connections to allow for good things to happen yeah and to maintain understanding at, a, at any given moment yeah balancing full-time work doctoral studies and family life can be extremely challenging what motivated you to take on this multifaceted role? I think in the the question that arose with respect to how that integration of explicit teaching of skills into the content that's delivered in discipline-specific courses in, in at least my setting of university courses was sort of a, a, a question that was going to be an itch that I'd want to scratch uh, no matter what. So I think that that direction was something that I've, I finally had now a question that any researcher I think dreams of, 
which is that the question could lead to more questions, which mm -hmm. could lead to more questions. And so I'm excited to undertake that. Now, you mentioned balance and right. trying to enable, you know, to, to, to put enough time. And it really just comes down to time, right? Like being able to safeguard the time you have with the different people in your life. And I'm, you know, talk about fail, failing forward. I'm always challenged by trying to do too much. And I'm learning day by day on how to say no to certain things so that mm -hmm. I can prioritize, you know, my family, mm -hmm. uh, my wife, Naomi, who's been absolutely central to my success mm -hmm. in every way. Um, my beautiful daughters, Lucy and Violet, who demonstrate for me just how empathic and, you know, how their ability to recognize the goodness in others. I mean, they sort of teach me every day as well. So Amazing. they are, you know, certainly priority number one. And, and it's really about defending my time with them as much as I can, which I'm not always great at, right. but I try my best. Right. I mean, the, those are key challenges, Joe, yeah. right? And to, and to manage those roles. So in overcoming them, I guess it's, yeah, what, how, do you, how does that work mm -hmm. to overcome that? I, you've alluded to it, though, that you've got to really look at it and make sure what you're doing is the right thing and how your time's being utilized correctly. But yeah, how do you overcome those things? Well, last year was a, a real test drive for adding more to my life than I ever have, professionally speaking. I had more teaching than I'd ever had during an academic term when I was also taking two PhD courses. And what that meant was, uh, as Tom Haffey mentioned to me, when you say yes to things, you have to say no to other things. Mm -hmm. And I really had to engage in this kind of silly behavior of recognizing what I called micro vacations and little stretches of time where I could say, okay, this is a compartmentalization of time when I'm going to take time off. Sometimes that was from, let's say, 5 p.m. on a Friday until 8 a.m. on a Sunday. And throughout that Saturday, it was, okay, now this is my time I have to dedicate to non-professional, non-school-related things, right? And, yeah. and, you know, it sounds silly to... to block it out so specifically but the demands on my time were just so great at that time I mean and certainly I'm not the only human to experience that I can only imagine you know sure. how members of parliament Absolutely. or other individuals with very busy schedules have to do the same yeah. but it really is about scheduling about timing time management and that's what's needed to find success that's for sure it's so important to schedule that necessary time for things it just allows you to be a better dad allows you to be a better husband, allows you to be a better student and also a better instructor. Because unless you're concentrating your time, energy and effort, it gets pulled in too many directions and that leads to burnout quicker. So really in the end, you've saved yourself and also the people around you, uh, potential grief, anxi anxiety, and uh, consternation or otherwise. So so that really does make a lot of sense to, to keep yourself organized that way. And anyone listening to this would be able to empathize with that or perhaps to take note of that if they find themselves in a place of um, constant stress and or, or feeling like you're in a, perhaps in, an, in, in a rut. 
in a work rut, so to speak. What roles does your wife play in supporting uh, your academic, Naomi? What, 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 what role does she play in supporting your academic and professional goals? And how do you maintain a healthy work-life balance as a couple? And I think it's a really important question. And I don't think it's one that's often discussed enough because it, it has taken her understanding of you and to be able to recognize that this is important to you and to, to support that in you and to, to foster that. But yeah, how do you maintain that healthy work-life balance as a couple? Yeah, Naomi is absolutely an essential part of why I'm able to, and I maybe selfishly is too hard a word, but it is taking on these studies and pursuing a PhD is focusing on myself exclusively. And so Naomi has enabled me to be able to do that by just taking on so much more of the, you know, scheduling responsibilities at home. I'm also very fortunate that my my parents-in-law, Roy and Dorothy Chichu, are also uh, residents of North Bay, as is my mom, uh, Sally McDonald, who's also helped so many, in so many ways. Um, and so it's really about these people in my life who've enabled me to be able to pursue this because, you know, whether it's picking someone up from school or coordinating girl guides meetings and right. and auditions for plays and all the other kinds of extracurricular activities that any family sort of takes on at different stages of life. Naomi is really the reason that I've been able to direct my attention and time towards these studies. Uh, that was so much more evident last year than it ever has been. So I'm so grateful to her for that. Yeah, it's so important that you have that support. And, uh, and knowing the names that you've given, they're such wonderful people. And it's nice to have a circle of support around you, uh, for sure. And no doubts, Joe, there have been moments that you felt overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. How do you handle stress and prevent burnout in your demanding schedule? There are times when I do get to a point where there's just too much on my plate and I th what, I, what I find fascinating, though, about resilience and developing the skills to deal with a large amount is that the edges of what you thought you could take on can get stretched. Right. And I'm not advocating that people should stress themselves out too much. But what I find interesting is that the more you take on, the more you find that if you are capable of scheduling appropriately and if you're fortunate and privileged like I am to have a good support structure you can actually take on more than you thought you could right. um, I'd ne I would not have thought I could do this mm -hmm. perhaps when my children were much younger for example mm -hmm. right so some of it is recognizing what the limitations are of your time based on your circumstances so I'm I'm you know able to deal with some of that overwhelm by saying, okay, you know, the kids are old enough now that I don't necessarily have to race home right after I finish this teaching. I can put a few extra hours in at work. But at the same time, it is then important to recognize that you need to be there to support and to be with my family, who ultimately I want to be with more than anyone else. So it really is trying to schedule as much as I possibly can and then hold on to that schedule. Right. And people say, oh, you should strive for balance. Well, balance looks different for every person too. Absolutely. And I don't think there's a trueness to that. It's, you know, things are to be equal I, I, as a part of balance. I don't, I don't think that's 
right, you know, hard working requires hard work. You've got to put in that time, right? And based on that, many aspiring academics wonder about the feasibility of pursuing a PhD while teaching and working full time. What advice do you have for those considering a similar path to yours, Joe? I, I think the best advice that I can give to people who might be entertaining, taking on and studies like conducting a, a part-time PhD, which arguably might be an oxymoron, part-time PhD. <laughs> um, but the best advice that I can provide is I'll circle back to my good friend and, and uh, fellow OCuber, Tom Haffey, who said to me that when saying yes to certain things, you end up saying no to other things, right? And so recognizing the power of and the value of saying no to parts of your life when you know you have to reprioritize mm -hmm. or modify what's going on, right? Like you and I were just chatting about the fact off mic for a moment about how much we would like to get together mm -hmm. in the future. And, yeah. and so much of it is just about time. And yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate yeah. that we just can't hit the pause button That's right. and, and just sort of engage in like, and it, these things change over time too, right? Like when That's you're in right. your twenties, sure. you just seem to have all the time in the world. And yeah. when you're in your thirties and forties, et cetera, things yeah. start getting scheduled in different ways that mm -hmm. you do end up saying no yeah. to things you would like to say yes to. Yeah. And I mean, it really does, we can't understate the importance of mindfulness and being mm -hmm. mindful in the actions that you choose to, to be, to be doing you're a part of. And, you know, as an example, I'm thoroughly enjoying this with you because it's a chance for us to hang out, which is not something we have a chance to do yeah. and also engage in really interesting subject matter and also talk about the things that we love. Yeah. So yeah, this is the definite yes. This is a yes moment. Yeah. You know, this is when you schedule something that is maybe a little unusual, like being a part of a podcast and then just following through on that commitment. Yeah. So that's what I'm finding. The more uh, that I can schedule these opportunities, whether it's with friends, whether it's with family and just saying, let's just pick a date and a time. That's that's the important thing. Targeting, you know, like throwing darts at a calendar mm -hmm. and saying, this right. is when we're going to do this and then following through and taking that time. Because otherwise time flies by. And I think that's the important part to that. And that's exactly what we had to do. Mm -hmm. And there is that follow through part on things. It's not man be pamby in that way. Because we both see the value in being able to make that connection when we can. And for doing so for the right reasons. Because there's more than just you and I to consider. There's, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's our families and other things that are going on in our lives too. So it's just nice when the planets can align, so to speak, absolutely, to allow for great things to happen. Yeah. Now you are um, a very humble person to me, and um, when I hear about students who've gone through uh, Nipissing University and who've had you, and some of them have ended up being my colleagues, have spoke so uh, well about your love and care for the development of students. And uh, they've always felt like you were able to give them uh, a good way of learning about the subject matter and in turn perhaps about themselves. And really, Joe, I think you are an inspiration. And, and I'm so impressed with your thriving mindset as you successfully manage multiple roles in your pursuit of higher education and your positive impacts on others, Joe, and your dedication to your family 
and your passion for travel and new experiences continues, but especially your positive outlook and your resilience and your commitment to personal and professional growth is impressive. I believe these attributes collectively demonstrate what it means to have a thriving mindset and the ability to lead a fulfilling and balanced life. Joe, thank you very much for joining wow. us today. Thank you very much, Terry. That was a wonderful thing that you said. I'm, I'm just absolutely honored and a little emotional that you described me that way. Thank you yeah. very much. This yeah. has been great. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Joe. And uh, I look forward to uh, meeting once again. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Thriving Perspectives. If you enjoyed this and would like more content from us, see the links in the description to visit our website and to follow us on social media. If you thought of someone in your life who might be positively impacted or inspired from this episode, please share it with them. Take care, and we look forward to connecting again with you soon. Keep on thriving. Mm-hmm.